I want to share about a great podcast whose message of active citizenship really resonates. It's called The Midpod, The Midterms Podcast, which is all about the 2018 congressional midterm elections this November. Nisi Panetta and Heather Atwood visit key congressional districts all around America, and they tell us about who's running and why that race is important. And they tell the story of the district. They even hold a potluck dinner everywhere they go. I really liked episode 37 about Lauren Underwood's race in Illinois 14. The Midpod is a great way to get up to speed on the midterms. Check it out at themidpod.com. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How can cash transfers transform our approach to alleviate poverty? That's our main question for today's guest on Future Hindsight, Michael Fay, co-founder and president of GiveDirectly. His organization sends cash to people living in extreme poverty and reshapes our understanding of what is possible in helping the poor. Foreign Policy named Michael one of its 100 leading global thinkers in 2013. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mila. I first heard about GiveDirectly five years ago, and I'm inspired to this day by your work. Can you please explain the work that GiveDirectly does? GiveDirectly offers an option for donors to give directly to recipients instead of organizations. So you can give cash transfers, no strings attached to those recipients. We've now scaled. We're about to be in six countries across Africa and have also responded to disasters in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. What we're trying to do is also transform the sector. The sector has always made decisions on behalf of the poor whether it's an individual donor flipping through a donation catalog and picking whether to give a cow or chicken, or it's an organization crafting a bigger strategy of training and other financial services, those choices have been with the donor. GiveDirectly is asking the question of what if we gave that choice to the recipient and is also making that opportunity available to donors, allowing them to give cash and capital directly to recipients themselves. How do you determine who receives the money? So broadly, we're looking for the extreme poor. The way we do that is we pick a location based on publicly available data on where are the poorest places in Kenya, in Uganda, and so on. Once we've done that, we'll do something that every NGO must do, which is targeting, which is how do you choose which households within that village get the money? Uh, for that, we'll do a number of different things. There's really no one Give Directly program. But what we're looking for are indicators of poverty, indicators that are transparent and easily explained to the community. And so how much do you give? There's no individual kind of cash transfer Give Directly program. We've given upwards to $1,000 per household uh, in many of our programs. So that's about $200 per person. And we've also given 75 cents per day or just $22 a month uh, in other programs like the Universal Basic Income Program. So since it's case by case, talk us through one of the examples of how you come up with a number. The most common is the kind of $1,000 per household or 200 per person. Uh, there's no science behind picking the number. And there's always a real question of do you serve more people with less money or fewer people with more money per person. Okay. How do you transfer the funds? So it's a 
surprisingly complicated process uh, for a shockingly simple concept of just transferring cash, no strings attached. Uh, and the complication is really uh, threefold. The first thing you're looking to do is, is find uh, the group that you're targeting, whether that group is refugees, the extreme poor, uh, folks affected by a disaster. The second piece is you want to enroll them in the program and confirm that the person enrolled is the person whom you thought it was. So there will be people that try to cheat uh, and other aspects of fraud that you need to be very careful about, obviously. Uh, and the third piece is the actual transfer of the money. Uh, almost all of our money is transferred digitally through mobile money, which means that the recipient will receive a text message saying that they've received the transfer from GiveDirectly and then can take that digital money to many of the local shops and exchange it for physical currency. Ah, okay. That's interesting. And is that widespread in the countries where you can go to these places and essentially collect the cash? Mobile money is not only kind of widespread in Africa now, but it's really kind of leapfrog traditional banking. So it's expensive. It's hard to put physical branches of banks in each village. What you can do is have a mobile money agent there that can exchange this digital mobile money for physical cash. When you first started, you transferred a lump sum amount in the beginning. And like you said, you gave $1,000. And that's per annum, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, per annum, per family, which is a huge amount of money for the rural poor there. So how did they spend that? One thing I would say is it seems like a lot of money. But when you break it down, it's really not that much. This is about $200 or so per person, which is less than a dollar a day. If I had a dollar a day extra or you had a dollar a day extra, this is not going to make a big difference in our lives. And yet we often have the perception that the poor just need 10 cents or something tiny. Uh, and we need to recognize that this is still a small amount of money. Now, of course, it's going to have a bigger impact than it will in our lives. The people we touch are usually living on about 60 cents a day. So that just contextualizes a bit about the size. How they use it is a great question. And it's one that depends so much on the context of the individual. Every individual has their own needs. I'm yet to visit a village where every individual has used the money in the exact same way. Um, someone may use it to start a business. Someone may use it simply to buy some extra livestock. Someone may use it to pay their school fees or just feed their family. And then you have people to use it to rebuild their house. Their roof is leaking. They need to replace their roof every six months and don't want their children to be rained on. So you see a wide range of uses of the cash itself. That's really the beauty of your program, right, is that everybody can determine for his purposes. And I think it gives a lot of dignity, in fact, to the recipient, because there's always this assumption that poor people don't know what they need and we need to teach them and we need to tell them how they should spend the money or how they should get a job and, and all these things. But this way, you're just telling them, well, you know, we don't know what you need and you can determine for yourself how you use it. It's exactly right. I, I find gift giving to my family hard enough and I know my family well. To think about buying gifts for hundreds of thousands of people across the ocean, assuming that they may all need the same thing. It's a bit of a silly proposition. Yeah, it sure is. When you put it this way, it really puts it into perspective. That's right. What have you discovered in your interactions with the people who are recipients when they receive the money, let's say, over the year? 
in in what way has it changed their lives? Yeah, so the way we look at this is through something called the randomized evaluation, which really is the gold standard for measuring what the impact of a certain intervention is. It's the way our drugs get tested um, before being distributed um, and being approved. And the way the randomized evaluation works is you look at the randomly selected people who've received the cash and, and compare them to the folks that did not receive the cash. And any differences can be attributed to the actual cash itself. And what you see, as I mentioned, really depends on the context. Uh, what we saw in one of the early Give Directly programs was an increase in income by about 30%. We also saw a meaningful increase in consumption. You'll see an increase in assets. A, a recent program found that assets go up by about 40% from the cash program. And you'll see a wide range of outcomes. Domestic violence, which is pretty significant and severe in many of these locations, falls dramatically. And the list goes on. That's uh, pretty amazing stuff. Tell us a little bit about how you can increase your income. How is that related? When I read that, I thought, oh, that's interesting. How does that work? Yeah, we have that old aphorism, right? Teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime, give him a fish, feed him for a day. Uh, and it's interesting because there are so many assumptions baked into that. Uh, the first is that after we teach him, he'll have a fishing pole that he can use to fish. Well, it turns out you need money to buy a fishing pole. So one of the most kind of obvious ways of increasing folks' income is to actually get the capital and acquire the tools they need to increase their income, whether it's a plow additional livestock. In one case, we saw someone buy instruments and actually start a band. <laughs> know get one gigs, does with make band. money. <laughs> exactly. Get gigs, make money. So that's really the channel. And the second piece implicit in the aphorism is that we are good at teaching people how to fish. Turns out our track record at training the extreme poor is not very good. How did you come up with this idea? Yeah, it's funny that we even need to ask the question of how did you think about just giving money? Right to people who need money. But it was counterintuitive. And wh why was it counterintuitive? And I, I think implicit in so much of aid and philanthropy for a long time uh, was the assumption that the poor were not very good at making their own decisions. Well, it turns out we learned in kind of the early 2000s that the poor are not only quite good at making their own decisions, but their track record is remarkably better than the sector and the organizations themselves. The second thing that changed when we st started Give Directly was the technology. It's not an easy kind of proposition to move hundreds of millions of dollars to the hardest to reach places in the world. But with the advent of mobile money uh, and some of the new digital financial solutions, we we're able to do that. So on one hand, we had evidence that this assumption might not be correct, and we now had the technology to do it. Why not do it? And at first, we, we had no intention of starting an organization. We were just a few graduate school friends looking to donate. So we called many kind of traditional nonprofits and organizations asking, can we give you money simply to transfer to the extreme poor? And the answer was no. Got on the plane, tried it, assuming we must be missing something. Well, lo and behold, we weren't really missing something. Decided to found Give Directly, and it's grown since. I love that story. Tell us a little bit about Blumpsum and monthly recipients, because you do a little bit of both. 
And how did you come yeah. come up with both models and what have you discovered? So ultimately, we would like to be in a place where we can give that choice to the poor, whether they receive one large payment or monthly payments. What we've done in the meantime is try both, both to get a sense of what the recipients themselves prefer, but also how the impact differs from giving that one-time payment versus the monthly payment. So that's what we're doing. The, the monthly payment is under a bigger project called Universal Basic Income which is a buzzword of the day. It's a policy proposal attracting a lot of attention. And really all universal basic income is, is a type of cash transfer. It's universal in the sense that everybody within a region or population receives the transfer. Uh, it's basic, so it's enough to meet your basic needs. And it's an income, so it's over a long period of time. Um, and it's pure sense over a lifetime. So we're doing the first ever long-term basic income, uh, and that'll be in Kenya. When you do this, let's say I'm on universal basic income, and I started the band, and now I make more income, do you disqualify somebody from receiving the funds, or do you just continue? So universal basic income continues. And the idea behind that is you don't want to disincentivize work which is the way a lot of our social programs work today. If I told you, good news, we're going to give you some unrestricted money, but if you get a job and start making money, we're going to take that away. Well, that doesn't really provide an incentive for getting a job. It provides a disincentive to working. And I think we need to be really cautious about creating social programs that create a disincentive to working. Yes. Um, what do you think about conditional cash transfer programs like in Brazil? Conditional cash transfer programs essentially say, if you do something, we will then pay you. So there's some conditions attached. Common conditions are send your child to school. In comparing conditional cash to unconditional cash, there's a question about whether or not there's additional benefit of the condition and what the additional cost of the condition is. Now, there have been a few papers that have looked at this. And what they have found is that the additional benefit of a condition doesn't seem particularly large. And in many cases, you can achieve that same benefit by simply labeling a cash program. So a specific example I have in mind is in Morocco, where they did a conditional program on children's education. They also simply labeled the program Child's Education Cash Transfer. The impact on that outcome was the same across now, the cost was not the same because monitoring the condition can be quite expensive. The other aspect of the conditionality that's important is the political feasibility. Unconditional cash in many contexts is not politically viable. It's too counterintuitive. So you need to in incorporate a condition. And a lot of the Latin programs were exactly that. The conditions were met by a large fraction of the population, but they were needed to get the political support to execute the program. Right. But for example, in Germany, they give you money if you have children per month, per child. And there's no condition. I think you just have to report, I have two children, and therefore I get this money. And I think it works just fine over there without a condition. Yeah. But And that has been a long-standing program that people don't actually talk about. I think when people think about universal basic income or these conditional cash transfers, they only think about the programs in developing countries, and they don't yeah. think about these programs that exist in Western Europe for decades. Or in the U.S., we forget that Social Security is 
simply an unconditional cash transfer program with an age threshold. That's a good point. Tell me, why are you engaged in this field on this issue? Well, I've been in the development sector and focused on poverty alleviation for a long time. I had worked in many of the more traditional types of intervention, teaching English, microfinance, and so on. And I think when I got to the stage when I had some money to donate myself, I wasn't convinced by what I had been doing and wanted to give to individuals and not organizations. I had seen the power of the individual from the various pieces of work that I had done. And now, during my time at grad school, I'd also seen the evidence that they don't waste the money, that all the assumptions we had made were just false. And yet this option for giving didn't exist. And I've dedicated the last 10 years or so of my life to creating that option for donors and for recipients across the world. So what is the result throughout your 10 years of doing this that you did not expect? It's a good question. What was not predictable? In some sense, at the individual level, I'm continually surprised. I think one of the first things that recipients did with their funds was to build tin roofs. As an outsider, I didn't understand that. You ask the question, is this just for decoration? Is this a status symbol? What is this tin roof? Well, it turns out tin roofs have benefits well beyond anything I imagined. And when I asked recipients, they would say, well, for one thing, this is a better investment than a thatch roof, which falls every six months and I need to replace it. That's quite costly. If I can get a tin roof, it can last 15, 20 years. The second is that tin roofs allow you to collect rainwater during the rainy season directly. You don't need to take the long trip to the lake or the well, wherever that may be. You now have clean water at your house. They'll also say things like tin roofs have helped with malaria because the thatch roofs will get moist. They'll collect water and mosquitoes. So it's quite nice to not have that problem. And then, of course, there's the dignity, which we often forget in these conversations of not having to watch your children be rained upon. I hadn't thought of most of those values of a tin roof, but the recipients had. And, and that's sort of the point. Yes, that, that is the point. One of the things that people always talk about when we talk about unconditional transfers is who pays for that? And in a larger program, in your case, it's in Kenya, how can we make that viable for the whole country, let's say? So the global community spends over $140 billion a year on international aid. On top of that, you have private philanthropy and then, of course, national programs. The global poverty gap is now estimated to be about $70 billion. And what that is, is the gap between people's income, consumption, so let's say they're at 50 cents, uh, and the poverty line. How much would it take to get them above the poverty line? So if that's $70 billion, and we're spending $140 billion on international aid, at least at the theoretical level, we can end poverty today. There's a lot of money in the system that can move towards cash and be used to end extreme poverty. Now, we don't think that all of aid should go towards cash. That would be silly. Roads aren't going to build themselves. Vaccines aren't going to discover themselves. There are all sorts of public goods that need to be supported by the public sector. But 
I do think that we should start using cash as a benchmark for what we do and asking the very basic question about whether the poor are doing more good with the money than we are. And if you can't make the case that we're doing so much better, then let's give the resources directly to the poor to let them make the choice. They know what they need better. Let's provide them the agency and dignity of making the choice themselves. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good way to think about it, to use it as a benchmark. What gives you hope? People. Watching individuals make incredibly wise, thoughtful decisions for themselves and their family. And the more we can do to empower them with the resources and choice to do so, the better. What do you think is the overall benefit to society if we could have steady income for the extreme poor? I think we're talking about ending extreme poverty. Great. Thank you very much. I was personally most impressed by the fact that Michael and the other co-founder of Give Directly started the organization after discovering that many of the assumptions we make about poor people are false. Our track record in helping the poor by dictating how money is spent is less effective than when the poor decide for themselves. The second takeaway is that the values underpinning Give Directly are universal, whether the recipient lives in Kenya or in the U.S. Human beings, by and large, make creative and wise decisions for their families with unconditional cash transfers. They prioritize their individual needs effectively and want the dignity that comes with freedom of choice. I'd like to close with an idea Michael gave me on how we can all get engaged on this issue. Start a conversation about extreme poverty around your dinner table, about direct giving, and whether recipients or donors should decide how the resources are spent. With so much money in international aid, it behooves us to invest in the most effective ways to eradicate poverty and to start using cash as a benchmark. I hope that our conversation today will move you to act. What is the significance of statues in commemorating our heroes? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guests are Pam Elam and Namita Luthra. They are board members of the Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony Statue Fund. Their organization is dedicated to placing the first statue honoring women's history in New York City's Central Park. And we want to redefine history so that it becomes a more active verb-like uh, concept rather than something in dust on a shelf that, you know, a book uh, long ago that doesn't include anything up to date might have told you uh, was the reality of the world. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Feda. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.